Oh, sorry, sorry, Gavin. I think you're clipping. Can okay. you can I'm you turn, turn your mic down, down a little I'm bit? Turn down. We'll restart. How's this? Is this a little bit better? Test, test, test. Yeah, I'm still yelling. A little, it's still a little loud, but I always yell when I talk on the <laughs> microphone. Okay. What's up, Polo people? Welcome to another episode of the Northside Polo Podcast, New Year's edition. And we have a great way to start off your new year today, and that is with a little interview. But before we get to that, let's talk about some polo news that's gone on. First off, Alex, my co-host today, how was your Christmas? My Christmas was really chill. Uh, It was good. It was good. But it was really, really chill. I have been absolutely overwhelmed with work for the past three weeks, Mm -hmm. and just getting a break, like... We're, I'm, I'm not done completely, but like there's a brief respite now and uh, it just felt so good to wake up and not have to, to work. I feel you. I feel you for sure. I mean, this Christmas for me and my family is a bit interesting. I was going to go to Columbia with my partner and um, her family and meet some of the extended family that she has down there. But um, it wasn't to be. I mean, Omicron and border restrictions coming up literally days before we were set to fly out. So instead, we just went to their hometown and um, been just having a super relaxing time. I think I've read more in the past week than I have like three years prior to this. <laughs> and honestly, it's just been a nice respite, like you said, from the day to day and the busyness of work and polo and life and all this stuff. Enough about reading more about polo because we actually do have some breaking news. Day of recording. One club in Northside actually played bike polo on Boxing Day. And none other than Forest City, the youngest club, but also obviously the most hardcore. They're setting the record for uh, Ontario, Quebec, who's played the latest. And it's them outdoors on Boxing Day. I mean, this is the year to do it. It is quite warm. Yeah, about that. Yeah, it's a little (laughs) bit warm out, especially in London, Ontario, where they are. I'm sure it was probably just hovering around zero today. But, uh, Hats off to them. I mean, they got their court dry and they were able to play games. So congratulations. Ottawa was going to try and beat that, right? We're playing New Year's Day. (laughs) No, it's all skating rinks at this point. Uh, Is there any any other news news? Nope. Let's just Um, get to it. You want to introduce the guest? Yeah. So uh, this week we're actually talking to Bruce Furlong from San Francisco. And I feel like we say this every time we have a guest on, but this was an awesome interview. And I'm so excited to share this uh, with everyone because... I think that Bruce is just so passionate about polo at a high level and uh, we really get into it this week. So I really hope everyone enjoys this. It's put me in the right attitude to start my 2022 on the right foot. And I am so excited to train and really try to bring my game to that next level. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Bruce. Here it is. Hey, Bruce, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Doing well. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, enjoy you guys' podcast. It's it's good to be included on it. Hey, we're super excited to have you, someone with as much experience and I'm sure just wealth of knowledge when it comes to bike polo. So we got some tough questions to ask you, okay? Are you ready for these? I'm ready for the hard questions, yeah. Okay, first... Are you ready for the answers? <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if I can the honest answers. answers? <laughs> <laughs> they might shatter our polo worldview. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But uh, I guess we just get started. We always like to ask guests how they started playing bike polo and kind of their brief history as to how they got into the game and how why they stayed. So 
take it away. Why? How was this for you? Oh yeah, the Polo Origin. Um, I I briefly began in 2010. Um, I was just I found out uh, that there was polo being played by some some local cyclists, and uh, I just hopped on my commuter and I played a couple games, and it was just insanely difficult. And um, I'm always up for a challenge, and so I knew the following season. Um, I wanted to play more and I lived in Minnesota at the time. So I played a couple games, the snow flew and then it was a waiting game until the next season. Um, this was in Mankato. So shout out to uh, Mankato blue skunk bike polo. That's where I started. Um, yeah, I started playing the game, fell in love with it. I became really good friends with Joe Ristam. He also started there. Oh, I love Joe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Joe, Joe is a great, wonderful human being. He's one, he's, probably my best friend but on top of that he, he's done so much for the sport that people probably don't even know or understand he'd be a he'd be an interesting person to talk to on the pod someday if he'd oh, be definitely. willing to do that but um but he and i started traveling around i remember the first tournament i actually went to i didn't even play i was just spectating um it was the midwest open in like 2011 i, I just fell in love with the high level games at the end of that tournament it was like the era of um guardians beavers uh, machine right. politics yeah. it was crazy yeah, man. that's like clobber politics and like uh, yeah 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 machine politics was was oh, yeah. in that one so that was before clobber politics and and oh, at God. the time the game that we were playing in mankato was just rudimentary we didn't even understand what we were doing and so when we went to see that tournament our minds were blown we went back and we're like hey guys we're not even doing this right at all <laughs> so i started playing there um building you know skills uh, I think I played a couple years in Mankato and then I moved to Minneapolis, played there for a couple years. I lived there for exactly two years and then I moved out to San Francisco and I've been playing here for, you know, another five years. Um, but yeah, I continue to play for lots of reasons. I know the obvious answer for most people is the community's great. Um, obviously if, if it was filled with a bunch of assholes, I probably wouldn't stick in it or maybe I would, I'm a competitive person. So maybe I'd like to beat them, <laughs> but, um, I really, I just really love the game in general. I love, um, the skill building, um, the challenge that presents me as a player personally, but also the opportunity to build something with a team and continue on and try to do something great together. Um, I love yeah. team sports. And I love the possibility of, of, you know, achieving a greater, greater goal, which is like a North American championship or a world championship. So did you, uh, did you play sports before polo? Like what, uh, I did. what kind of sports did you do before? I did in high school. I basically played most of the sports. I think the ones I excelled in more were like individual, which was track. Um, but I loved basketball. Um, I've always loved basketball. Um, I played a lot in college as far as like rec league. Before bike pull and after I finished in college, I was just playing like beer league softball. And uh, as much as I enjoyed playing that, it <laughs> didn't scratch the itch. So, yeah, I'd always played sports. I'd always watch sports, sports acumen and like sports IQ is just I've gained from watching and playing is, is immense. I feel like there's a huge crossover between bike polo and beer league softball. Like there's actually a healthy percentage of players in a lot of the polo communities. I I've think talked the crossover is the beer part. Yeah, the beer. Yeah, call me crazy, but it might be the beer. <laughs> I find sometimes like I play a lot of basketball too, Bruce, and I find sometimes there's some similarities there as well as far as like decelerating and accelerating and mm-hmm. moving off ball, and especially doing like dribble handoffs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. DHO. Once you have a drop pass, yeah. 
Yeah. So, so I, 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 I was prepping for this pod. I was writing out my answers and just writing notes. And, and uh, I actually wrote down DHOs and things of that nature that are similar. <laughs> Um, I, I'm a huge Warriors fan. I've I've been for years. Oh, that makes sense. We're, considering our, our, our regards. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, you know, so we and the naked handoff, naked handoff, things yeah. of that nature, which do coincide <laughs> with the sport. They might just have different vocabularies behind them. Yeah, I'm just forever stuck in 2019. You know. Yeah. Wow. Rap- Raptors forever. As Canadians. Yeah. <laughs> Raptors fans, yeah, that was a so. that's, that was a cute championship. You know, it it took yeah. major injuries. <laughs> for that to happen and you know like the most immaculate shot of Kawhi's career but you know we'll take it oh, yeah you can coast on those fumes but y'all y'all got scotty barnes man you know you might have a generational talent speaking of great passing you know that yeah. scotty barnes is amazing he's, he's i'm such a, a big like fan Jay anyways now. we're getting way off topic here um, <laughs> a big reason why we brought you on the podcast was because we wanted to talk about offense we want to talk about offense with someone that has you know a lot of experience playing on multiple teams and well-known teams for you things like the control wendigo nino dio ninos dios am i saying that right dio? nino dios nino dios yeah and i'm just curious when it comes to offense you know what's your philosophy for bike pull what do you think makes a good offense and what are those some of those earmarks of a strong offense um communication um you know, spacing, positioning, um, speed and pace, you know, a lot of the similar sort of concepts that apply in other sports. But I think it's more, it's more of like a mercurial thing in in bike pull because we haven't set out these like um, fundamentals of what Mm -hmm. makes a good offense. Um, I think a lot of the things that I have done with my team or we have done are all very basic and fundamental things. But again, we don't have like a handbook, right? We don't have, we didn't grow up watching people do it. So um, all these things that I just laid out, you know, the communication, the spacing, positioning, changing of speed and pace. um, It's all kind of maybe abstract to bike polo players. Some of them newer players. I I feel like bike polo is at that stage where, you know how they say like cultures have like an oral history. I feel like we have an oral history of like offensive plays in polo and it hasn't been codified into like a, a playbook or anything that like as a new player, it seems insurmountable to understand like what all these rotations and people are talking about positioning. And like, I remember jumping on the court in Toronto and playing with some of the, some of the like tournament level vets here. And it's like so clear that they have a system and it took me years to be able to slot in and actually like not just feel like an obstacle on the court when I was on their team. But yeah. the frustrating thing is if you ask them, what's your system? They can't always put it into words. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it's just built on hours and hours and hours of playing together. But they can tell yeah. me when I'm out of position. Yeah, I think, I think <laughs> a lot of that, what you're, what you're speaking to there is a lot of people don't, they don't have the vocabulary for the sport. They have an idea of what they want to do or the system and, and to what you're talking about the system, but they can't put it into words. I think one of the things that I think we've gotten better at in our club in San Francisco, because it, it's largely a veteran club, it's, it's laced with like 30 plus year olds that are playing it <laughs> is we, we played long enough and we played other sports that we can put vocabulary behind it. If to, to like flesh out your question, what makes a good offense in San Francisco is it's, we, we keep the ball, you know, um, ostensibly the game of bike polo is a game of keep away right and through that you have to exercise patience and i think with like specifically the team control that i played on we you know uh, 
pun, no pun intended, we controlled the ball very well. Um, we did the boring stuff. We, we made the drop pass. When we didn't like what we saw um, at a point of attack, attacking, we would peel around and we would reset. Um, we would drop pass again. Maybe we take it behind net. Ultimately, it was playing keep away and then building up to a moment where we had a high percentage chance. And I think a lot of people in bike polo, they're always trying to cram a, like a square peg into a circle hole instead of just being patient and using each other on offense to get a good look. And a lot of times that good look doesn't look sexy and it might not be a big ripper <laughs> or something crazy like people doing 360 pirouettes on their bikes into a backhand. But boring wins championships. And um, that's just an old adage from every sport. Yeah. I think I think that ultimately, yeah, it, it's it's all the fundamental boring shit that makes a good offense. The thing I want to kind of hit upon, though, is there's this kind of tipping point, right? When you're playing against a team that's really conservative, mm-hmm. they're really turtling up in their end, mm-hmm. and they're just really playing that style of conservative wait wait you out. I mean, possessing the ball is great because that means they're not scoring, but you might not get a super high quality chance, right? And in bike polo, like a 10% shot at a goal is probably a pretty good shot at a goal. But if you're playing against a conservative defense, I mean, when do you start to say, okay, we might actually have to start taking some of those shots that we wouldn't usually take because we're not getting better looks. Yeah, certainly. Uh, That's a good point. I mean, so different teams will give you different looks on defense. Um, So let's just say someone's turtling a net. They got one, one on the net one right outside the crease, you got to pull that number two guy out. So a lot of times you have to establish a play to do that. And if you've played with someone long enough and a team long enough, you know what you need to do, which is typically you send that person forward and you try to make them pull that two off that crease. So there's different things you can do to try to get that high percentage look. Ultimately, again, it's it's the patience. But um, maybe like football, sometimes – the quarterback will just throw it one deep to get that defense to know that it's there. So if you got to look like sometimes the two that's on the crease isn't totally covering up and that goalie might be sitting a little bit with the guy on the crease, mm-hmm. you, you shoot for that corner. You know, um, I've definitely scored some goals and had some looks have gone in because they left that open a little bit. I feel like when it comes down to shot selection, like, everyone i feel like most against most good teams if you can get a one-on-one with a goalie like that's a great oh that's shot. that that's sort of like what you're trying to accomplish with an offense mm-hmm. i feel like if you're shooting through two bikes it's probably not a great look like and they're both set up and ready and then it's just a matter of like where in between those two things are you expecting to pull the trigger right is it like i know for myself if i can line up like confidently line up the bottom bracket or feel like I've got a good angle around the, the wheel of the second bike. Like I'll, I'm like, ah, oh, that doesn't, that it doesn't count anymore. I'll just like shoot and hope that it's the first bike, which is not maybe true. Like I, I feel like I take a lot of shots that just go off a wheel right in front of me and go back. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like if I'm playing against a team that I think we're outmatched with Alex, I'm going to try to, you know, I might take some worse shots if I'm playing against a team I think is a lot better than us because we're going to need to get lucky in order to score a few <laughs> goals, you know? So I'm trying to like, I might take, 
some worse looks in those situations in hopes because they're so good. We're not getting those great looks. We usually are. I always, I sometimes think about that. Maybe that's a bad decision to make because I'm putting myself out, but I don't know. I I mean, we've talked about our offensive philosophy before. Don't pass, take bad shots. (laughs) I want to hear what Bruce says because I I think, I think we've hit the ceiling of what we're able to accomplish with that philosophy. Yeah. It sounds to me like when you feel overmatched, you will take the lower percentage shot because you feel like that's your best opportunity. Um, I understand that, you know, I, I, I think my path to success has been paved by heartbreaking losses, getting crushed in tournaments. I mean, I remember when I got like 13th at a qualifier, I felt great. You know, I was like, (laughs) wow, I'm on the up and up here. Then it was like seventh and there's, there's moments and there's lessons that I've learned through all of those games that still stick with me to this day that I've learned from. Like, oh, don't do that again. Or do you remember that moment mm-hmm. when, you know, the defender was coming up on your right-hand side, my ball side, when I was on a ba- breakaway, and I went left, and I should have went right to cut his line, so I have the one with the goalie. I still remember those things. And, you know, I, I would say to you guys, like, believe in yourselves, you know? Like, even if you feel outmatched, believe in your skill and your talent and your teammates to help you get through those those tough times and those hard possessions because – um, patience and slowing the game down is everything. I, I know one of the philosophy things, like I play a lot of other games like esports and things. And mm-hmm. one of the, one of the things you commonly see in a lot of gaming situations is when someone feels outclassed, they almost defeat themselves. And it's like, if you think the other person's better than you, at least make them beat you, like make them be better than you. So, you know, and, and to be fair to Gavin, like we talk about this all the time. I think you're not talking about taking any chance. You're talking about like, being a little bit more liberal in the shots you take. Yeah. You I mean, like I'm much. talking about maybe yeah. like, instead of shooting only at 10%, maybe shooting at an eight or a seven, you know, but uh, these are the decisions and choices that I think every polo player makes sometimes though realizing it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing to talk about with your team as far as to come up with a cohesive strategy and to make sure you're all on the same page. And as uh, an athlete, I think having an irrational confidence in your, in your talent and your skills important, you know, like I, I think of coming up in this sport, I'll never forget one time I traveled to uh, Saskatoon um, to visit Andrea because we were going to plan a team together and we were finding our way through the sport and we still had that sort of honeymoon feeling of the sport where it was just Mm -hmm. like eat, sleep, polo. And we were out playing together, practicing uh, under the moonlight. And we were talking about like our dreams and goals in the sport. And it seemed so far away at the time, you know, it was like, we talked about winning a North American championship together and things of that nature. We didn't do it together, but um, we both did. We both end up yeah, doing back, it. It's crazy. Years, right? <laughs> yeah. Shout out to, to Mosquito and, and all of them. I watched that from home. That was a, a great run. But yeah, it, it's just crazy. Um, I guess I just want to bestow like hope for anybody that thinks that they're too small of a player or in too small of a club to do something um, amazing in the sport. Because you can, you know, like I came from Mankato bike polo. I remember getting made fun of at the first term we played it. People were like, where's Mankato? And they're like pointing at our bikes and laughing, you know. I was playing like on a mongoose rockadile. Like, <laughs> that's like, like red style. Yeah. I'm picturing this like 80s movie, like, we're, what's that bike? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I can't imagine. I can't imagine that happening. At yeah. I, and I remember we got, I think we got DFL and like the Chicago club, like got us this like gift. And it was like little ninja action figures. And I didn't quite understand what that meant. <laughs> but now I realize after time, it was like, oh, it was like, because we weren't even 
there. It's like we weren't there, you know? It's like, <laughs> oh damn, yeah, right. Wow. And, and I remember the people that gave that to me, and I and I've since like kicked their ass in a lot of games, you know? and it's it's <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's nothing personal, but those are the things that I remember. And and uh, yeah, it's it's possible for anybody to do something great in the game as long as you know you can understand offensive, um, yeah, ideas I think- better and defensive. Um, I, I would be remiss, um, and I would be mad at myself if I didn't quick say everything in bike polo starts with defense. I know we're here to talk about offense, but defense starts everything. Um, the transition from a defensive player to offensive player in relation to one's goal is the shortest of any sport, right? So you play that good-ass defense, you get that ball, you're on offense right away. That, that goal is not far from you. No, not at all. And you can go really quick towards it because you've got a bike yeah. between your legs. Correct. And uh, it <laughs> yeah. helps a lot to get down the court quick. And I think, you know what? Defense is obviously the foundation, I think, of good mm-hmm. team play when it comes to bike pull. There's so much about knowing what your teammate's going to do and how you can shade off of them in order to force a player to the outside or take a backhanded shot instead of a forehand shot, these kinds of things. And we did an episode on defense and I think we're going to revisit it, but like, I really want to hit the offensive stuff because I know I personally feel a little bit out of my depth when it comes to offense. Um, So why don't we break it down to kind of the individual level, right? We'll start there. And just what do you think are the most important attributes for a player um, to bring to that individual level of the game on the offensive side of the ball? I mean, from a very ground level, the sport is about winning the ball, keeping the ball, scoring the ball. So um, being comfortable with that ball over your front wheel, having it on a string, dangling it. Um, we've got some new players in San Francisco, which is rare. It's usually most people's move here. But we've had some young players, and I've been telling them, you know, you just got to get that ball, solo polo by yourself, get used to holding on to it because everything comes from – being confident and comfortable with the ball. If you're not comfortable and confident with the ball, you're not going to be a good offensive player, period. You're just not. So that that's the fundamental like um, keystone, I guess, if you will, of being a good mm-hmm. offensive player. You got to be good with the ball. You got to be strong with the ball and you got to have confidence in yourself with the ball. Um, beyond that, creativity. Knowing what you want to do with the ball before you have it in relation to where the defense is at. And I know that's like um, more advanced, like seeing, seeing the big picture before you even have the ball, but reading the defense, knowing what to do once you have it. And a lot of times that entails having a go-to move. That's another thing I've been telling our newer players. They're struggling with the defense that collapses on them. And if they're struggling, it's typically because they don't have a go-to move. Figure out something. And they're like, well, what is that, Bruce? And I'm like, I, you only you will know that, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. For, for a long time, my thing was going through my own bottom bracket yeah. and everyone kept telling me that's a terrible thing. And I broke so many mallets trying to hit it through my bottom bracket. <laughs> and eventually I stopped. I got, I felt like I dialed in that shot to the point that I'm like, I can hit this. I can get it through my bottom bracket. It is not strategically the right thing. Like it is a terrible go-to. And uh, I, I, I feel like that was a step down for me, you know? It has a time in its place. Yeah, exactly. And, and... Mm-hmm. I was using it way too much. <laughs> You're talking about the shot though, Alex, right? Would you say you have I'm a, the, would you have a go-to? I do move? the shot. I do everything, everything. Like I would just put it through my bottom bracket whenever I could. When I'm talking about go-to move, I mean, when the four check, the number one, four checkers collapsing on you at the point of attack, mm-hmm. what is your move to get past them or to facilitate to your teammate or to get that, that um, defense moving? You know, that that's, that's what yeah. I think as offensive players, we all kind of have this moment 
when we're not um, confident in ourselves, when there's a good defender come up, you're like, oh shit, what do I do now? Right? Yeah. And when you have that moment, you got to have that move or a quiver of moves, right? And I think as we become veterans in the sport, we have lots of different ideas. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There so, may be a handful of moves that you practice a yeah. lot to use <laughs> and, in different situations. Being creative. I just remember like Shondell, we were playing our summer league in Toronto, and Shondell was just like, every time you get challenged, you do the same thing and you turn it over. And she's like, I'm behind you. Drop pass. Trust. It's the so drop. easy. Just the drop. She's like, if there's two defenders on you, instead of driving it into the corner and turning it over every single time or going through your bottom bracket and going to the corner every single time, like I'm behind you, I'm wide open, just like drop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, after that, we, uh, we, we did a lot better. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I felt sure. like, I feel like in one night I became a better player. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing I've been telling a lot of the the newer players and even some of the veterans in our club about, you know, some offensive schemes when you're handling the ball, because I like to talk about off the ball as well in a bit, but get to the center of the court, the the wall, the boards, whatever, whatever you have, the chain link fence, whatever you got Mm -hmm. in your respective city, that's the fourth defender. And I see so many people moving to the wall and going far left shooting maybe a backhand that has like a low probability chance of going in or they just lose it if you get to the center you've got more space to work and you've got more space for creativity so anybody listening out there that's struggling with offense i'd be willing to bet you they're moving to the left if they're a right-handed player and they're getting themselves on the wall and they're not trusting the drop you know like alex said which uh, that's another thing that i've said in lots of different ways maybe not so kindly is trust the mf drop you know like the draw and this, yeah. and, and I warmed up for you guys' pod, but listen to your, your pod on, on passing, which um, ultimately <laughs> oh, <no>. it seemed <laughs> like um, you all came to the conclusion that passing is very important as an offensive scheme, which is good. Um, the drop is one of the most potent plays that you can make in bike pole. And I, I feel like control in our run, um, it was crucial. Well, I was watching some of your run earlier today and just you'd see the control you guys would just be cycling the drop pass three times in the corner just to break a four check right and as soon yeah. as that four checking defender was a little bit over aggressive and kind of got out of play on the drop like andrew would get the ball and just press that advantage so hard or bruce you did that quite a few times too would press that advantage and just take that player out of the play by either running them or cutting them off as they tried to get back into the play and it was yeah. pretty remarkable, but like four or five drops in a row. And I'm like, are they going to turn the ball over? That's five <laughs> completed passes in a row. But hey, but the control did it to great success. I and, that, and that's that's a control slash like San Francisco thing that has has bloomed since that team. And um, yeah, we will circle and we'll drop that pass in our own defensive corner as many times as it takes. And that's back <laughs> to the whole patience thing. Mm-hmm. Just waiting for that defensive player to yeah. just be a little bit over aggressive and then yeah. press the advantage. Yeah. And, uh, and the, you know, the experienced players of bike polo and, and the more savvy ones, they know that we want them to come back to the lion's den. Right. We're like, come back here, please. Like, come, <laughs> are we, I say like, come to butthead, you know, like <laughs> come on back. Like, here. Please, please come try and take it from me. Please. <laughs> I want you to, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. um, and, and I'm not giving away any trade secrets here because I don't think many bike polo people will, will even listen and, and, and take this to heart. You know? No, they'll listen, but they don't. Ouch. No, 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 they'll listen. <laughs> what I'm saying, one of the problems with a lot of bike polo players is that they are stubborn. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> it, yes, for sure. Yeah, you, you can try to bestow wisdom or strategy upon them, 
and they don't want to hear it. it. It's largely a community filled with, um, what do you want to call it? Misfits, people who maybe didn't fit in, in in a certain, you know, sect of sport society, which, you know, I identify with that as well. But being told what to do as an adult is a, is a hard pill to swallow for some people. So yeah. I, I definitely think that's actually part of what makes bike polo so much fun is like, you look at almost any other sport and whatever the, the established meta or the way that people play that becomes so dominant and it gets picked up and you see similar games play out over and over. And because there's so many people in polo that are just doing their own thing. Like I think of the, the rear wheel, like the rear brake only mountain bike guys in Ottawa, like they just play a different game and I, I love it. Like it, it's the, the whole scene is better for having a couple people like that. I don't think it's like the highest win percentage, but I think the scene overall is so much better for, for having that diversity. Mm-hmm. A lot of those players aren't concerned with winning, to be honest with you. They just want to look really cool while they play <laughs> I mean, and they can't think of anything cooler than 180 skids. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, clearly if you're still playing on back break only, you're not concerned with winning because nobody on that <laughs> is winning. I mean, that's just fact. I, Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like I respect I respect yeah. anybody that sets foot or wheels onto a bike pole court, 100. You know, and there's a place for everyone, um, depending on how far you want to go in the sport, like what your goals are. But yeah, I mean, there's certain there's certain like bike component bike things that are just facts. You know, like fixed gear. You're you're on fixed in this day and age. You're just gonna be left in the dust you know you're riding back break only <laughs> like there's just limitations you know it's just end of story for sure we're all we're all gonna have to change to tiny bikes when they win the next uh worlds um, the, the mini bikes. <laughs> the i ride bikes. a small i ride a small i ride a small enforcer um 26 and have, have you seen the mini mini bikes though this no. new trend oh, like oh the, inch wheels. the anchorage guys <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> i saw brand brandon was uh riding one of those in uh grand rapids which oh my god what a miserable tournament that was it, <laughs> it was fun i'm talking about the, the weather that club is amazing by the way shout out to grand rapids bike pole those yeah those totally are great. it was it was fun until it wasn't and it wasn't because it was rainy and cold <laughs> yeah we watched the finals on that little like phone camera view and yeah. uh, it looked like it was rainy and terrible but still polo and right. we were pretty hard up for competitive polo so we watched yeah. it all yeah um a question i want to get to because you said you know polo players are really stubborn and mm. sometimes that adds to the diversity i'm just curious in your opinion mm. what like individual skills or moves out there are the most underrated by the polo community at large and which are the most overrated i think if we want to start with underrated um i would definitely say being useful off ball. I think a lot of people when they think about offense is what am I doing on ball, but, Mm -hmm. um, holding your line off ball and trusting the play, pulling defenders Mm -hmm. is sometimes the most important thing to do in the sport. I don't know how many times like I, as either an off ball offensive player have created, like pulled, um, the defense or changed the defensive shape. Because ultimately, when you're entering in your own attacking zone, you want to move that defense, right? You want to yep. get them into a shark tank, yeah. and you want to get them feeling like they're discombobulated. When you, when you say shark tank, do you mean that like circling kind yeah. of, uh, like they're scrambling to pick up the next play? Or they're the moving there too. You know, the crease guy is yeah. getting moved around yep. a lot. Yeah, exactly. Shark tank, put them in the, you know, the spin, spin cycle, as, as Jan in our club likes to say, um, moving them. And I don't know how many times I've, I've helped people score goals or I've scored goals because my, my teammate is a good offensive player that they have to mark and they're pulling 
that that defender somewhere and then I've got a lane or they've got a lane like yeah. it's just it's so crucial it's so integral to offense and scoring that people don't really realize it move move without the ball do not stop don't don't plant yourself in the offensive half keep moving because a lot of times you know the the ball carrier is trusting that you're holding that line for maybe a pass maybe you're coming around the net and they're going to pass it around to that side of the net and then there'll be another opportunity so I think that's super, super underrated. Um, One of the classic examples of that that I've seen is like, I'll come around the back then and circle around to come get a drop pass. And my teammate won't even give me the ball, but both defenders <laughs> will hop onto my side of the court. And then yeah. my teammate, she has just a free lane to the net to take yeah. a shot because they really think they're going to drop to me because they are afraid of my shot or whatever. And I mean, yeah. that off ball movement just gives options and scares the defense. Yeah. I, speaking of speaking of Joe, uh, Joe Ristom, mm-hmm. like I, I played with him in New York for ESPYs uh, a couple of years back. Oh, cool. And that was the weirdest tournament because I was playing with uh, Joe and Dirks <laughs> and on a line with them. I had the ball and nobody covered me. Like, yeah. it, was the, it was like I'm like, I'm in your half with the ball and I'm just like, I guess I'll walk in and take an open net shot. Like, this is the weirdest thing. But it's like they just have so much magnetism as players like they pulled defenders because people were just so terrified of their presence. And I'm like, okay, well, I can shoot from here. Like, I will, <laughs> you know, at a certain I'm point, it's like, I will. Yeah. Like, I know, I know, like, I'm not the, the offense, like on that line, I'm like, I don't, I'm not the player I want. We want to be taking the shot. But like, if they're, if you're going to cover these guys and they don't have the ball, like that, that's incredible. Like that's yeah. so much you can do as the yeah, take the shot. Alex. Hell. Yeah. 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 And that's, and, and that's, it sounds crazy to even say, but like, Another underrated aspect of bike polo is just MF teamwork, dude. Like (laughs) I see so many people just trying to play the sport as if it's individual. Um, And there are people that have, you know, succeeded in the sport and have obtained a lot of glory by playing it individually. But those, those people are special. Um, You know, you you can't, you know, you see, you see Diego out there and, and shout out to him. He's a good teammate too. I've played with him before. But that dude, what he's doing a lot of times is just individual talent and just max effort always. I feel like a lot of people fall in love with that type of stuff and they like to see the big rippers and, and um, you know, the great individual talent and they don't realize they can get it done together, you know. And when mm-hmm. Alex, what you were talking about was your teammates understanding their role at the time, which was to pull defenders and gave you an open look if you wanted one. Um, so, yeah, I think I think playing as a team is is underrated in our sport. And I think passing is, is, is still, I can't believe at this point in the sport, I still have to talk about (laughs) passing being underrated. It just doesn't, it, it, it's not sexy to do the drop pass, but just, just make the motherfucking drop pass, man. (laughs) I've had to say that for years. And uh, so yeah, passing, I think passing is still just underrated. Would you say the drop pass is the one that's most underrated or like what kinds of other passes would you say we should be doing more of as well? I think the drop pass is still the most underrated. It just gets everything started. I think when yeah. you, as the ball carrier, at the point of attack, you're up front first, and if you enter your offensive half, right when you hit that drop pass, it might be, it might look like a cross, but it's still a drop, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you're getting a defender to have to make a decision. You're making them have to change their defensive shape. As soon as you start to make a defender question what they're doing, if it's right or wrong, or who they're going to have to mark, that's when you start something great with your team. That's when you get people out of position. That's when you're going to create opportunities for yourself. Yeah. Um, 
to, to force them to make a bad decision, you have to force them to make a decision first. Yes, make them make them make a decision. You just bring in the ball up and being a singular player, that's easy to that's easier to defend. They know where you're at, right? As soon as you drop that ball, they have to decide, okay, am I going to go to the person that's receiving the pass or do I mark this offensive player as they move without the ball? And sometimes people make the wrong decision, you know, and you might get a good look right away. Or it leads to a, a good look, another pass or two down the line. Okay, but what about overrated skills? What are people practicing way too much? Um, I mean, we, we on this podcast we think passing is overrated. Just, just just to clarify, yeah, no, we, our, we, our thesis we put, we put our that, we put our flag in the sand. Our thesis was that the drop pass was great, but some of these yeah. other passes are risky. I think that was kind of the point of that podcast. Yeah, yeah, and and, and the two the two deep the two deep pass which you guys touched on is one hundred percent correct. You you got a, a fast break with two people up forward. You make that pass early, and then one's got to start peeling or at least hedging towards the wall. I agree, but to to answer your question, overrated stuff, and I've I've fell victim to this forever. With big rippers, big rippers are overrated. Um, it's so I, satisfying. <laughs> that's yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I I was in, like instantly smitten by lefty Joe Panizo's ripper when I first started playing the game, I mean, that guy would hit the ball and you could hear it whistle. Like I'm, I still to this day, <laughs> haven't heard anything like that. And I, I developed a pretty good shot myself, but uh, it started to become my crutch, you know, and I still see people in our club, even if it is the right shot from the right location on the court, they're trying to just hit the shit out of it. <laughs> you got to change. So one of the things that I have been implementing the last few years that's changed my game and I've become more efficient is different arm slots for different places on the court. You know, if you're shooting like beyond half court, which you shouldn't anyways as much because it's a low percentage shot, of course, you're going to have a larger windup. But as you get closer to that net, work on different arm slots and work on just connecting with the ball. Because if you connect, that sucker is going to pop and go fast no matter what. doesn't matter how hard you mm-hmm. swing at it. You know, um, the, the larger your, larger your um, arm slot, the more of a windup. Sorry, when, when you say arm slot, do you mean like where you're gripping the mallet and how much you're winding up? Or when, like when I say arm slot, um, I think of pitching. If you're familiar when they talk about pitching arm slots. I'm not I'm not familiar okay. with baseball. So that's my, I'll, that's I'll the hole it, in my sports more um, respect in terms <laughs> of the sport. Your arm in relation to the ground, it should be more parallel, not up high, more parallel. You just have a, a larger margin for error, right? And I've learned this just from hitting the ball millions of times. And I've gotten so much better by just having a windup, but it's shorter and compactor. Um, and the closer I get to the to the net, it gets shorter and shorter. And then finally, one of the things I've learned from my homie Andrew, one of the greatest players to ever play the game, is learning to rake the ball in. And that is simply using the ground to guide your head and just popping it off the end in the net, man. <laughs> that dude, if you watch any videos of him, he scored a lot of goals by raking the ball in. So, mm. yeah. So you so, mean dragging the head along the floor yeah, yeah. and then popping it that way? That way you're always level with the ball. You know you're what I all- mean? It takes away one of the axes of missing. Yep. That's interesting. Yeah. So different arm slots are different. Basically taking it easier on your swing the closer you get to the net. Um, I have been practicing it for the last couple of years now, and I've become way more efficient. Um, we don't chart statistics, um, unfortunately, in our sport. I wish we did because then people would probably be able to learn a little bit better. But I know in my head, I'm just shooting a high percentage now on net. And that's everything, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, big rippers are overrated, man. You know, I was shocked even looking at like, we looked at a couple games we tried to like take stats on just like how many passes happened in a game. What was the completion rate? That sort of thing. And even in the couple games we looked at, it was like the numbers were completely different than what I thought they would be. Yeah. Probably very inefficient. Right. Yeah. 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 Our, our sports still in the infant stages where we find inefficiency, sexy and cool. Um, <laughs> but, but that also means that there's so much room for someone, like you were saying before, it doesn't really matter what club you're in. If you come in and you find an angle, like you can get pretty, pretty dang good, pretty dang fast. Yeah. I would argue that inefficiency is cool in a lot of sports. I mean, if you look at the basketball context, like Kobe <laughs> Bryant's like Hiradam, even though he's missed the most shots ever by any player is like just evidence <laughs> that people still love the person who feels is the hero that can take it all on their shoulders and win the game by themselves, even if it's a team defense that's picking up the slack on the other end. But yeah, volume volume is cool, and there is a time and place. In the most recent tournament I played in in Grand Rapids, I was playing more of the facilitator for for my team, and um, you know I was letting them get a lot of the opportunities. And our offense was was solid, but it was a little stagnant. And I realized, you know, on the second day, I was like, I I gotta stop this now. I gotta go back to to a little bit more of a gunslinger attitude. And I was taking some more inefficient shots, and I knew that in my mind, but it was open. It was opening up the defense a little bit, and I was scoring some of them. So it depends on the time and the place, right? Um, it depends on who you're playing. It depends on who your teammates are. It's a very um, volatile idea about offense. It depends on who you're playing with. Do you find the courts and the surfaces you play on dramatically changes your approach to offense? Like, oh my god, if it, if it's bumpy or if it's like the boards are super bouncy i found that size of court has really changed how i view offense i've played so many tournaments that now i know if i'm what i need to do on a larger court as compared to like a very small court (laughs) you just know if you're playing on a small court like a like a pinball you know like the arcade size Mm -hmm. courts great great leagues in toronto which that doesn't really happen anymore but that's like the iconic, like just tiny, tiny court. Rest in peace for good reason, man. I, I played that yeah. tournament once and I never, <laughs> never again. If you have to, if you have to play, if you have to Coke wash your surface, just don't play it. <laughs> but yeah. but um, um, yeah. the smallest courts, like you're setting up your, your defense, you know, it's just, you got one on the crease and you got one, one on the net yeah. and it changes with larger courts as well. But so what would you say are the big differences in your strategy on a long court versus a short court? How would you change your play? Offensively, with um, a short court, um, this is fresh in my mind because of the Grand Rapids tournaments, short court, you're just taking more shots. You're not getting in as deep because if you make a mistake or there's a, an unfortunate rebound, it's an instant um, fast break the other way. So the change I made or the correction I made in that tournament was I decided that we were going to start shooting from a little bit farther out, which wasn't super far out because of the size of the court. And in a longer court, when we were playing in, in Mankato, um, I sent you guys that that game clip. That was yeah, a awesome. huge court. So you'll notice that's, that's that, a Toronto court. <laughs> yeah, it's just too big. You, you'll notice that we were using each other and we're kind of like dancing with each other, pirouetting down in circles just to get it to work it up. Um, there's a lot of that. Yeah. And I guess some people might say, well, why don't you send up big long passes? But it's tiring. Big long courts by Sunday, you know, late, late on Sunday, <laughs> if you plan on getting there, you can feel you can feel the size of a court. So using each other to move the ball down the court together is very important in like a shorter quadrant, I guess you could say. Whereas 
smaller courts, you're just kind of shooting from a little bit farther out and passing isn't as important. Mm-hmm. We had a similar tournament uh, on in Montreal on a court called Bird. It's just massive. And by the end of the Sunday, I was exhausted from just pedaling up and down and up and down. And we weren't working the ball up the court. We were just sprinting back and forth. And <laughs> yeah. it, the legs felt it heavily yep. the next week. Yeah, it's exactly what I was talking about. You know, it's if you're not if you're not taking the right offensive strategy on a large court, you're you're gonna get punished physically. You're gonna be tired. I know I know a bunch of people in that Mankato tournament were just gassed and it was hot too. So you gotta factor in the heat. Um and if if you can make that change with your gear ratio, do it. Don't be lazy. Like yep. if you got that, that smaller tooth cog laying around, put it on. Just do it. Interesting. Yeah, I've never even thought to do that, but it's a really good idea if you have multiple cogs. You mentioned, you know, being gassed. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about, you know, because you've played on the control, which is a world-class team, Mm -hmm. what's the difference in preparation for a team like that versus, you know, a team that might just be a bunch of people going to NAs just to to see how far they can go? Like I'm as far as like training and practice and these Mm -hmm. kinds of things. Okay. Yeah, well, um, control was a very special team and it was the first team that I ever played on where we practiced like, um, consistently leading up to NAs for like, I think it was a two, three month period. And we practiced like every Friday and we wouldn't practice. Like I heard other people would practice against other teams and all of that, which is fine, but we didn't do that. We would, we would practice against each other. So largely our practice involved two versus three. Those were some wild times, man. Like I, <laughs> I kind of wish, like I, I, I kind of wish there was some video of that. Um, the two, the team of two, you know, you're going against someone like, let's just say the the original like three v three control would be, you know, Andrew, Boris, Ace, and it'd be like Jackie and I versus those two. And <laughs> once in a while, the team of two would come out ahead, you know. But w- the thing that was important, that was amazing about that type of practice, was that we built this sort of trust and camaraderie typically when we were with on the team of two because it was you know us against the world which were three players three world-class players um Mm. and and there was times where that worked out and and i'll i'll share a story with you there was a moment at north americans in frederick maryland in 2017 big game against um crunchy which was um i believe aaron hand pete Diego and Gavin, I think, very good team, super mm-hmm. hard team to beat. And Andrew was getting fo- like fouled towards the end of this game. He got <laughs> frustrated, and there's video of this. He reached down, he grabbed the ball, and he threw it over the boards. <laughs> and and, and Forrest and I are like, "What the hell he's doing?" And they they put him in the box for it. And we're like, "Okay, that's fair." And <laughs> so it was it was Forrest and I sitting out there, and we had to kill a penalty against three of the game's best players. And I know in my heart, in my head at the moment, I was like, I've been here with Forrest. And Forrest and I happened to be our two best defenders, like in front of net at the time. So that was key. But I just drew from that, you know, and I trusted him and he trusted me as my brother, you know, and and we killed the penalty and it was huge because I think they were down by one. Wow. Yeah. So moments like that, the preparation there was invaluable. That type of shit. And just being friends, like we, that team of five, the, the squad control, we were, we still are, you know, we're best of friends and we hung out all the time. We kind of just trusted each other and knew what we, each other wanted just through osmosis, you know? What, what was it like? I feel like before, cause before you joined control, I feel like you were obviously at a, a really high level within polo, but like, what's it like joining? Cause 
an established group like like the control uh boys because they they went from sort of that core three of uh forest ace and, and andrew to obviously squad you know cha- changed everything up like i think you you joined with the the change to squad right yeah yeah i, I joined the year that the sport switched over to squad but like how do you integrate with because like they i feel like they were one of the most established like three player units right yeah they had continuity and, and that's something that um i've been having conversations with about when people ask like about how how do you gain success in the sport and maybe we can come back to that in a second here but um yeah they, they had their continuity um I had just moved to the city. They had picked me up when I was down. There's just some stuff going on in my life that wasn't going well. And they're just like, nah, fuck that. You know, like, come over. Let's have some beers. Hang out. We'll make dinner. And then and that meant a lot to me, you know, that that hit me on on a, a higher level than sport ever could. You know, like they were there for me as a friend, first and foremost. Yeah. And so we became friends. And um, I was a solid player when I moved to San Francisco. I, I definitely wasn't the best player. Like I came from Minneapolis where I felt I was pretty good. I was like one of the better players, if not the best. And I showed up and I was like, damn, this is hard. You know, like there's some shit I need to learn just to swim. And I got better. But to, to answer your question, joining that team was invigorating. You know, like one of my ultimate goals, and I touched on it before talking with when I was with Andrea, talking with her is to win a North American championship. And, and I was like, wow, holy shit. Like I have this opportunity. Um, but also it was, there's a lot of pressure on myself. Those, People did not put any pressure on me. Um, I think that's that's what's so great about that team is, is there was never any finger pointing. There was never any blaming. Um, it was only about building each other up, even if you made a mistake. Andrew is is an incredible player, you know, maybe the GOAT, but he is an even better leader and captain of our team. I don't think anybody ever felt down or pressured or sad or – you know, not equipped because he always kept our spirits high and it wasn't about winning as much as just doing it the right way and doing it together and having a good ass time. And somehow through all of that, like being friends and having fun and we're on vacation with our best friends, you know, and we're like, (laughs) we're staying in a motel six with like two beds and we're pushing them together and sleeping on the long way. Like all that shit off the court, like came together on the court and and it, and it worked out, you know, chemistry. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a hell of a run. When you joined the team, that was before they'd won any of the because they didn't win any. They won their North American titles after squad was established. Right? No, they had won. They had won the last three v three North American championships. Um, Ace Forrest and Andrew beat. I can't remember the name of that team, but it was Sean Marsh and I think it was JT and Jake Langdon. I can't remember Albatross. Yeah, that sounds that sounds. Yeah, great. they beat they beat them at Folsom in a very close game. And so, yeah, I joined, um, you know, for their hopeful repeat season and, and with Jackie, with Jackie Rust, who had always been with them traveling, like being, you know, their best team manager. And Jackie's Jackie's a hell of a fucking player, too. So I'm so glad that squad happened um, to create, you know, a moment for someone like Jackie, who, you know, like to show that she can be on a team and be a super, super important part of a team, a crucial part of the team that can win a championship. And she became the first ever WTF North American champion and well-deserved. Totally. Yeah, we, I was actually just, just rewatching uh, that championship game. And like you talk about uh, Andrew's leadership, like I don't think I'd ever watched the end of the game. Like I didn't realize the whole like double penalty nonsense uh, in yeah. the last eight seconds. And like, yeah. I was 
like I was getting tilted watching that years later, knowing the outcome. And I'm like watching the composure that you, your team had on the court. Like presumably you knew it wasn't really going to be meaningful because eight seconds isn't that long, but you don't know, know that like if that had led to quick goals, like, Oh my God, I, I was like, I was losing my mind watching it this afternoon. I can't imagine (laughs) the composure and leadership you guys had to get to have to keep it together in that moment. It it was wild, man. Um, All I know is like, we, we did that. we we did it together. We won that tournament together. But in in that game, you know, Andrew had one of the best performances in a championship game that I've ever seen. Like that guy put us on his back when it mattered the most and and got it done. And it was pretty wild, man. And, and you know, um, we played a very hard game before the Bob Ross final against uh, Mosquito. Um, and that could have went either way. You know, bike pull is crazy. It's the margin of error is so slim. We could have lost that game. Uh, we did, and we pulled it out. Jackie made had some amazing plays in that. I remember she scored a backhand that was super crucial. I mean, everybody had their moments, but yeah, that that last game was was stressful. It was definitely stressful, but we got it done. We took care of business. Um, we we stayed on our bikes the best we could, and uh, yeah, we got it done. That's an, another thing to real, touch on real quick about offense: staying on your bike. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, yeah. not dabbing, man. Um, that's, I think that's probably underrated as well. I don't think people talk about that enough. And we definitely talked about that as a team. Stay on your bike. Don't dab. The amount of goals you see scored when a player dabs is the percentages just skyrocket. They must. I mean, I've watched yeah. enough bike pole games on YouTube to see oh, someone's dabbed and then a goal happens. Maybe the player recovers and gets back into the play, but the defense is discombobulated. Like you said before, Bruce, and that can be enough to increase the odds of a goal. Um, I agree completely. Staying on the bike is so important. No, hundred percent, Gavin. I mean, it's 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 a power play every time. It's just a, it's just a short, quick power play, and if you can take advantage of that, you're going to win. And I know that in in um, some of the there's some stats that have been taken in the 2018 specifically uh, 2018 uh, championship game, North Americans. And I've seen those stats and um, the turnovers were two to one in favor of control and um, dabs were two to one in favor of control. So, you know, it's fun. The fundamentals, man, the fun, they're boring, but you know, I, I know a lot of players in bike polo that can win a skills challenge, right? Probably beat the pants off of a lot of good players in the skills challenge, but they'll melt, they'll melt in high pressure situations, you know, um, mm-hmm. because they're not staying on their bike. Well, and, and so much of it too is like, it's not just about being able to have the mechanics to do the really good thing, you know, eight times out of 10. It's like the player that can do it 10 times out of 10, make the right decision, be in the right place, even if they're not quite as fast or quite as good. Like it's that one time out of 10 that you don't do the right thing. That's where the, you know, that can be the difference in yeah. at that level. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think about doing people that do the right thing and we we're kind of talking about might not have like uh, the flashy play or the skills. Um, you know, Pete Abram is a, is a player that, it, man, he, he makes the right decisions most of the time. One of the smartest players in the game, and, and that makes him one of the best players in the game. And I think there's a, there's a dissonance between what, what's good, right? And, what, and like, if you're highly skilled, then you're very good. It's like, well, being smart and, and understanding the game is probably more um, valuable than being able to do uh, you know, a 360 nose pivot or whatever, like you, know, you can do yeah. that. But, um. And Pete's the perfect example of that. I mean, all of that team, more sugar, none of them do pivots or it's very, very rare or scoops or anything like that. And they're still like 
ruthlessly efficient yep. in so many of their tournament wins. Like we saw that in yep. Boston this year, hundred percent, just crushing great players. Um, great guys too. One thing you mentioned before we started recording was just about physical conditioning mm-hmm. and how important that is for bike pole. And I'm just curious, what is, what's your thought on that? I think bike pole players, they don't, there's this weird gray area in the sport where is it a sport? Is it a, is it just a social club? What is it? And, and I think that sometimes people, they love to think that it's not a sport. Therefore they don't take care of themselves as well. Um, and that's okay too. But like, I guess, I guess I think of specifically on like a lot of teams I've been playing with recently and then also control, like people are in really good shape now, you know, like a lot of us are in our thirties and shit. So it's like, you kind of start to see people getting away from booze, you know, working out a little bit more. You're seeing a lot of people that, you know, have, you know, strength and conditioning do better later in tournaments. And I know personally, you know, through some of the people I played with, you know, Andrew, Jackie, myself, man, there's times where I've had to dig deep on a Sunday, you know, late um, semifinal, final, where I, I know that work that I've put in, in the gym, you know, strength training, uh, weight training, you know, riding a ton on my bicycle, like it comes into play. I just know, like it's a 50-50 ball or something. Maybe I'm hopping around, I'm trying to battle for it, like I don't know how many times, like when I wasn't as strong, like sometimes you drop your mallet or you're just gassed. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think that's another underrated aspect of the sport. I think I hear a lot of people in the sport over the years kind of question, you know, their, their place in the sport or why they haven't gotten to play with a certain team or people. And sometimes it's just a lack of accountability. It's like, are you in shape? You know, have you put in the work? Like, are you, are you an, a strong athlete? I just think it's something that, if you want to get far in the sport, start taking care of yourself, start taking care of your body, get strong, you know? And if you want bike polo to be a social club, there's nothing wrong with that. Like it, we're here for you. You know what yeah. I mean? We, we need you too. But if you're trying to like have a Sunday run at a North American championship, like you there, it, it's a sport at that point. And there's, mm-hmm. there's basically nobody. I don't think there's any teams that are playing on Sunday that haven't planned and they're not playing at a level to get there that, you know, having that conditioning is going to make a huge difference. Well, yeah, there's this disconnect, I think, where some players see it as a social club and treat it as such. You know, they show up at pickup, they have their beers, they hang out, and then they wonder why they don't get on, you know, the team that goes on to Sunday at NAs. And it's because, I mean, that's a grind, right? You're putting in work. That's a continental championship. You don't get to a continental championship in any sport without spending some time at least spinning your wheels in the wintertime to keep your fitness up, right? I mean, that just comes with the ground of sports in general. And I think it's great, Bruce, that you brought it up on the notes because uh, it's something that I see a lot too. And I think this game could be even more if people were taking their fitness and their conditioning more seriously because it, it does gas you out. People don't realize that, especially when you're doing hops and wheelie turns and endo pivots. They gas you out so quickly. They do. They really do. Yeah, I, I can already, you know, I, I turned 40 this year and I can already feel how much from just years of conditioning and just understanding the sport a little bit more i'm just stronger now and the game's easier because of it maybe i got that old old man power i don't know but um yeah <laughs> well it's good to hear because I, I turned 30 this year and i was like oh is it all downhill <laughs> oh man, no. oh, man. The, the best years are ahead of you <laughs> we were talking before um about you know it, the fundamentals are what really matter like you might have the skills to do the crazy wheelie turns and stuff but to bring it back to what we said, like sometimes it's the drop pass that's actually the best play. And that's not a particularly flashy or mechanical play, mm-hmm. but 
when you're looking at like the top players now, mm-hmm. what kind of mechanical skills are you expecting them to see? Like five years ago, I think if you could wheelie and you could scoop, that kind of set you apart to some extent. What are you looking at now when you see like if Worlds happens in the next year or two, like what what mechanical tricks do you think are just going to be like standard? Like those are going to become the new mundane. You're, you're talking about maneuvers within the sport. Or are you talking about like, um, you know, core fundamentals just as a player? Oh, I mean, I, I'd say both, but I, I was thinking just like maneuvers. But if, if you've got a fundamentals as a player, that might be more useful. Things, Yeah, I think the things that I see from the top level players is that they're composed they've they've seen whatever they're whatever you're throwing at them they've seen it before so it's experience so i, I know if it's a little daunting maybe to your listeners that have been playing for a couple years four years a lot of the players out there that are the, the best you know quote unquote they've played six to ten years you know so they're they're composed because the game has slowed down a lot of the a lot of the elite players they play within themselves you know like they know they know their strengths they know their weaknesses and they don't try. They don't try to to force it. You're just gonna see. There's a couple of some of the best players that are a little more breakneck and fast paced. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But a lot of the best players out there, even if they're playing at speed, you can kind of tell they're playing with purpose, right? Like they they know what they want to do before they do it. They can kind of see where the defense is at, and they, and they know where their teammates are going to be at. So there's not a lot of guessing, I guess, going on with those players. And they're just composed. Like I, I know personally, like I think I was a little more um, nervous to come on here to talk to you guys than I am <laughs> in a late Sunday game. Like I've just done that enough that it doesn't bother me anymore. But I remember, you know, four or five years in getting late into a tournament, man, having those those wild butterflies. So a lot of it's just reps, you know. Like you've done it so <laughs> many sure. times, yeah. And maybe you, you have a, a system that keeps you loose everybody's different right so find find that that system that will keep you loose and and keep you feeling good you know because when you feel good you're gonna be loose and when you're loose you're gonna play better man like i see people that get themselves so stressed out before the games maybe they're they're talking too much strategy or they're worrying too much about what the other team's gonna do you just need to worry about what you need to do as a player and what your team needs to do and 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 i think that was one of the best things for control we we made people play our game. We didn't worry about their game. I played on a lot of teams before control, and I feel like there was a ton of strategy, um, strategical talk about what we need to do to the other team or what the other team liked to do. And then as soon as I went to control, it was really interesting because there wasn't much of that anymore. It was, this is what we need to do. If we do this, we will win. If we play our speed, if we play you know defense first and then capitalize off of that, we're going to win or we're going to be in a position to win. So I think anybody that's aspiring to be a better player, or maybe they are a really good player still worry about your game, worry about what you need to do as a team and don't worry about the other team as much. Everything will fall into place. Yeah. I love that answer. I think so often we work from a reactive lens, trying to react to what the other team is doing to us when sometimes the best strategy is the strategy we came in with and the confidence to maintain that strategy, even if at first we seem a little shaky, right? Yeah. But not switching mid-game because that can add confusion to things. And I've yeah. seen myself fall into that trap many <laughs> times. And Yeah, and I think when people are, are more focused on what they need to do, what they know, like um, this is, you know, the answer to the solution is, is playing within yourself and with your team, they're you become more clinical and fundamental because in those late later games, 
it is really boiled down, baked down to who can make the less mistakes, who can be more clinical with the ball. I mean, I, I can think of a lot of teams that, again, were super skilled and they ultimately couldn't get it done in, in high pressure, high level situations because they couldn't stay on their bike or, you know, maybe they got flustered. Maybe, you know, there's players out there that, that you know, get out of their head. Um, so, yeah, it's just playing within yourself, man, trusting yourself, doing what you know you need to do. It's the irrational mm-hmm. confidence thing that I talked about before. Just believe mm-hmm. that you and your team is the best. And if you lose, it's okay too. That's another thing. Don't fear losing. It's okay to lose. Like it's not the end of the world. Every weekend of polo tournament, like only one team is going to walk away not having lost their last game. Totally. And I've seen, and and through the years, I've seen people who have won tournaments who had a bad time, you know? So uh, like, again, if you're there with your friends and you're on vacation and you're having a fun ass time and you get third or fifth or seventh, or 13th or whatever it is, DFL. If you had a good ass time with your friends and you have something to work on or build on, or maybe you got a good story about something that happened off the court. Hell yeah, man. You know, and like you can't lose then. Right. But if you're, if you're you're super tight all weekend and you're like yelling at people and getting mad at other teams, or maybe it's becoming personal. And even if you win, what's the fucking point as an upcoming player, let's say, you know, you're someone like a Gavin or myself. <laughs> Purely hypothetical question here. How would you go about joining uh, one of these top teams to to have like a, a deeper run at North Americans? I would say put in the work. You know, like when I first started in Mankato, I was doing a lot of solo polo, and I remember one of the one of the um, skills practices I would do for myself was there was this blue there was a blue line because we played on a hockey court, and I wouldn't even worry about the goal, and I would just shoot at that blue line. And I live, I was lucky because I lived some blocks away from this court. So I would go down there and I would take a hundred shots and I would do that two or three days a week. Um, so put in the work on your own skills. You know, it's not, some people just want to wait for things to happen. That's not how it works. It's about reps and, you know, getting out there in the tournament circuit, playing with different people, showing, showing your talent that you've, you've built, you know, like if you're putting in that work, like get out there and show that. And this is this is not always the easiest one for people, and, and maybe not even possible. But sometimes you do gotta maybe uproot and move to a different club that might be a little bit higher talent level, because you will plateau in a club that you know is ma- mainly like comprised of newer players or similar players. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that I progressed as a player when I moved to Minneapolis to a point. And I got to a point even there where I was like, okay, I, I can only go so far, you know, with this club. Um, and that's respect to them. Um, love all those people. Shout out to Minneapolis Bike Polo. They helped me a ton. Still love those folks. So so move work and move to San Francisco? <laughs> like talent, work, and move to San Francisco? I, I don't think I can do it's any of those. coast quick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's tell you that you bring that up because like um, Robert Wood and uh, Mark Friends asked me kind of a similar question. They're like, well, how, how, did, how did you – get skilled like how'd you get good and i was like kind of answering the same stuff and they're like oh so i so move to a better club is what they said you know just like jokingly but (laughs) i mean honestly when i moved out to san francisco i didn't even know how to do a a front like a front nose pivot and i learned very quickly when and and pick up against (laughs) andrew against uh tyler ferris some of these dudes are really good on their bikes like if i don't learn this like i'm gonna be left in the dust or i'll just be this player that's pretty good you know, and it's my choice. So I, I made the decision to put in the work on these skills that, you know, when you're vulnerable on a bike, seem kind of scary. 
but just, yeah. you know, you, you got it, you got to do it. So yeah, if you're in a, a club with established veteran players, you're just going to get better or it's sink or swim time with some of these people, you know, like when I moved to SF, there was world champions, there's North American champions. So yeah. And again, that's, that's something like I, I was a single person at the time, you know, I can make these decisions for myself. I realize that's not realistic for a lot of people, but uh, ultimately like a lot of the best yeah. players move West, you know, it's, it. I mean, for first up, we got to win the Diego sweepstakes, get him to move to our city, and then uh, we'll we'll build. You know, if we build it, they will come, and we'll uh, we'll get something good going out east. That's here, right. You know? I so I listened to that pod. That was a great pod, by the way, you guys. Um, uh, yeah, that that streak that Diego is on, it, it's worth noting. It was incredible, and Diego's an incredible player in person. So I got to give him a lot of love, and I've had some great conversations with him about bike bowl. He's always down to chop it up. Love that pod. And, and if I can give you guys some more kudos real quick, I'm glad that we touched on your pod in general. Um, the <laughs> pod with, with Sean Ingram was um, very well done. I'm glad that you guys gave him a platform to talk about um, his his place in bike polo, his history in bike polo. Um, I just want to say thank you to Sean Ingram from the bottom of my heart because without fixed craft, like I don't think bike polo would be what it is today. Totally. It bums me out that there was a loud minority on, on the internet that kind of created a division between his love for polo and, you know, R and D and, and fixed craft. And, and, you know, I'll just say what I want to say about that. Shame on you. If, if you, you poo pooed someone that was trying to better the sport and did, uh, yeah, I just I just want to say thank you to Sean, thank you to Fixcraft. That dude changed the sport, revolutionized the sport. So absolutely, yeah, there's no doubt about it. That was a really special podcast that we did, and we were just so uh, excited to be able to have him on the podcast. And we just decided to give him a wide berth and to speak his story because. I mean, we didn't even know what he was going to say. Yeah. That's why we did it. I was just curious. Like, I wanted to know. I'm like, I know this was such a big company, and being in Canada, like, I feel like a lot of what happened in the history there just did not make it to us right. mm-hmm. it was like this huge thing that was here and then it wasn't and like yeah it was really awesome to to hear from him why you know what happened. yeah and unfortunately that era there was a lot of just inflammatory bullshit that was going on on the internet it seemed like a lot of people were tra- still trying to learn how to use the internet as a forum and clearly <laughs> they were failing miserably um i think the polo community has gotten better over time, but you you know, it's like you you don't shit on somebody who's dumped. I don't even know how much money he dumped into the sport, but Oh my God, just the, the, the cleat, man, the connect that that thing changed the sport. (laughs) It's a little piece of metal, you know, like I, I personally wouldn't be playing the game if I still had to like build it out of raw ski poles and crappy, like whatever piping that you stole off the side of the road. I wouldn't do it. I just don't (laughs) have time for that shit. So yeah, I mean, I feel like it's with so many things like this, it's uh, two steps forward, one step back. And like, I think Sean definitely carried it more than two steps forward and losing him probably put us back more than than one step. But I think that's just the nature of these things, you know? Yep. And we'll move on and we'll learn from it. Um, the community is still in a good, good spot. And I believe in bike polo. But yeah, I just wanted to give Sean some love because that dude, super, super important for the sport. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's a great place to kind of, end this conversation on offense, so to speak, but I have just a question of curiosity about the control. Sure. 
what is this team coming back in the future? I mean, they didn't play Cordoba. What's on the like after the pandemic? Are they coming back? The world wants to know this. You know, we want to know if we're going to see control back full power. Oh man! Well, since there's really no like um, news outlet in bike pole, it's you guys now, right? Like you're the right. you're the journalistic front of bike pole, though. It's like exactly. this, this type of news will already be out there. But you know, unfortunately, control is done. You know, um, Ace moved to France some years ago, three years ago, I mm. think. That's the bike polo center of the world. <laughs> he doesn't play anymore. He uh, he moved there with his partner. Um, Forrest moved out of the city as well. People are just kind of going on with their lives. The other, us other three, Jackie, Andrew, and I, we're still playing bike polo. You know, we play on a weekly basis. But yeah, control as we know, it's over. Um, it was a great run. I mean, um, a three-peat, you know, I was part of two of those. I was happy to help, you know, two-thirds of that. But yeah. Control was a great run, wonderful team. I'd like to think we were we're the people's champion as well, even if we hadn't won. Uh, I think we did it the right way. But yeah, unfortunately, that team isn't coming back. Um, But, you know, uh, the namesake got to ride off into the sunset, you know. I feel like there's a long history in North American bike polo of teams being really good and then winning three times and walking away. Specifically these California teams, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Has anybody else won it three times in a row? Was it? Didn't didn't Beavers? I think Beavers I, am I just like full but full revisionist right? history they're at not, this point? I think Beavers did. No, but they moved out to San Francisco at the end of the run. And actually, Brian Dillman oh, yeah. was out playing the other night. He still plays a little bit here and there. Oh, wicked! But shout out to you go, here first, Brian Dillman. <laughs> yeah, man, he's he's a lovely person that, too. I love Dillman, and he's still a very good bike polo player, by the way. That doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, Bruce, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing some of that knowledge and expertise with us, because I think that was a really rich conversation. I think even myself, someone who, you know, maybe has won a tournament here or there can take a lot from that as far as getting on to the next level. Right. And uh, yeah, it's really changed the way I'm thinking about a few things. I got a lot to think about before the polo season hits in the spring. Yeah. It's, no, don't change. Oh. Isolation offense only. <laughs> yeah, it's don't true. Pass. Hey, it's my pleasure, guys. <laughs> you know, it's um, I, I rattled off a lot of ideas and concepts and was maybe babbling a little bit, but I'm always open if people... That's know, what we're here for. Yeah, perfect, right? I can sound off. Yeah. But yeah, if people ever have questions about bike polo, I think one of the things I like about the current state of bike polo is that people at the highest level are more accessible than, than it used to be when I first started. So I'm always here on a DM, like shoot me a message or whatever, man. Like I'm, I'm open to helping anybody. Cause it's like, I've played this sport for 11 years now. And if, if I can't, I, I'd like to give back if I can. And we're so happy you decided to get back to this podcast. So thanks again. And uh, <laughs> hopefully see you at a tournament coming up soon. 2022. I've expecting big things. I'll be back. You'll see me out there somewhere. Great. Bye for now. Awesome. Thank you. I'm going dudes. Wow. Yeah. Bruce is just, I feel like we could talk to him for six hours yeah. and he would still be giving us new insightful things to think about for bike boys. Obviously thought a lot about it. I just love how many people in the bike polo community you can just talk to about polo for so long. Like that has been my favorite part of this podcast is just finding different people that, you know, maybe we've been in the same tournament before, but we never got the chance to talk. And yeah, then for sure. it just makes me realize like, man, I love so many people in this community and it's, it's, it's awesome. It's just like, yeah, I love it. And with Bruce, I mean, we talked about maybe one or two specific topics, right? Like offense and kind of pushing yourself to be on that next level of the competitive stage and international bike polo. But I mean, we could have talked to him for the same length amount of time as like about growing a club, about drills, about conditioning, about building a bike, about all these different things. And I think it could have just kept going on and on and on. And I think, in our community of bike pole, we have so many insightful and 
smart thinking people that have thought about all these topics, which is something that's pretty rare, you know, and not everyone's just solely concerned with getting better. Absolutely. Which now, now it's the weird part because, uh, if in case you haven't noticed, Liam is not here today and, uh, we're going to have to do the mailbag without him. I don't, I don't know how to do that. Like I I was just going to, I was going to wait. I was like, Liam's going to say mailbag and then then nobody said mailbag. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Why don't we take turns here? I'll read the first one. You can read the next okay. one and we'll just go through. Okay. So let's start off with a classic. Brett from St. Louis writes, Hey guys, another great episode as usual. I have some gripes with your opinions on scoops. Over the last season, I switched the Nanata to Tory head, formerly the Guardian's head. It's got a hilariously bad scoop compared to any other current production heads. And in ditching the scoop, I feel my skill level has upped four times over the summer. The consistency over all services I get with not even considering scooping has changed everything for me. Granted, I'm still on my way up and maybe scooping at a high level is still in my future. But if it works for Hammersley, it works for me. As always, great work. Love y'all. Brett from St. Louis. All right. So Brett brings up a personal anecdote here, Alex, about that guardian's head, which is far narrower than the average head. And uh, he can't scoop with it, but he seems to like it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think like scooping is still a fundamental part of the game like when you get to that higher level it's still going to be an important part like it's still something you can pull out of your your quiver or like your bag of moves but i think it's still overrated like i still think people spend too much time practicing it and you know like it obviously it's great if it's working for for you brett but uh it should it should be that like one of a couple go-to moves it shouldn't be like your whole game plan right yeah i agree i think some players definitely lean a little too hard on the scoop and they might love it because it looks flashy and i think those players that do that are probably really great players and they don't need that crutch so switch to a head like the donata tutori or just a piece of pipe and practice not scooping and become an equally strong player like that and then when you bring the scooping back into your game imagine how much better you'll be because you can just do more things i will say I've been I've been using the Donata heads and I've kind of the last few like the last two years I have not had a head that was good to good at scooping and I've kind of more or less phased it out of my game and I honestly I gotta say I think I'm playing better polo but I really look forward to finding a a head that will be good at scooping so I can like work that back into my game a little bit because it's it is so satisfying when you burn someone with a good scoop absolutely it's great and burning them with that scoop but I find like the Nana heads are pretty good at scooping at first. I mean, they do wear, I mean, like any head does, but I, I use a 4.5 incher. I forget. I think it's called the Bellella or whatever. Yeah, I think and, that's what uh, I have. That's my favorite head. And I find that it scoops fine and rip shots and passes. But are, are you saying it, it might be me and not the head? I would never say it was you and not your equipment. You know, I'm a big proponent of blaming the equipment whenever anything goes wrong or the weather. Yeah. One of the two. Well, and that's, that's why you can't rely on scoops because it's, it you know, you need a good equipment and you need a good surface and you need good weather. Like Brett, you're going at this all wrong. You need to line up all of the reasons why scooping didn't work before you commit to it. So that if anything goes wrong, it's not your fault. It was the weather. It was the head. It was the surface. It was the court. It was like, how can uh-huh. you, how do they expect you to play on the surface? And scooping allows you to emotionally hedge with these excuses more frequently. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And if it does work out, you look great. So it's really yeah. a win-win or a win, not as bad lose. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, let's get to this next email. We're just talking nonsense. Okay. Okay. All right. This is from Jacob from Tallahassee writes, 
Uh, I'm just getting back into polo after a long hiatus. Welcome back. Uh, the positive and welcoming community found in the hardcore bike polo is what brought me back. And I am trying to get my headspace straight after this brutal mental health feud and social isolation of 2020 and 2021. Your podcast is fueling the fire. So keep up the good work. I just got done listening to your crank arm length discussion, and I wanted to share my experience. As a 6'1 rider, I've always been on 175 cranks since that's what common sense seems to dictate, as well as what's specced on my bike, and that's what seems to fit me. My lower back has always paid the toll, and in my experience, shorter crank arms have been able to alleviate my back aches and pains, of which I attribute poor ankle... Ooh, I'm not, I'm not going to get that word. Uh, dorsal flexion. Dorsal flexion, there you yeah. go. Uh, and tight hips. Long cranks are at the top of the pedal stroke too. 165 cranks open up the hip angle at the top of the pedal stroke, which actually takes a lot of pressure off of my back. That's a really good point that we didn't get into mm-hmm. in the pod. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that open hip angle is actually better for power production. If you check too, you can check out, uh, and then it looks like he linked a YouTube video. It's Dylan yeah. Jason's video on YouTube and just shout out to all the Tallahassee bike polo homies from across the nation. One love Jacob. Okay. We got through it. And I'm going to say first at the top that Dylan Johnson's YouTube channel, he's like a racer with a background in science who talks a lot about mountain biking and gravel riding. It's a great, um, a great resource to check out. That's Dylan Johnson's YouTube's on video. I mean, a video on YouTube and uh, he does a ton of stuff on different efficiency and training kind of sciences for people that are into racing bikes. But I think in this situation, Jacob brings up a point that we didn't talk about in the crank arm length discussion, but it's super important. I mean, these long crank arms, I mean, they stretch you out more on the bike, right? Your hips are going to come, your knees going to come higher up and your ankle is going to have to come lower down. And if you're someone that maybe struggles with flexibility or is tall or has any one of those other issues, I mean, it, it could alleviate some of those aches and pains that I know I felt on the polo yeah. bike for sure, especially in the hips. If, if I ever start a Twitch channel, I'm going to call my subscriber base the short crank club because the more I learn about crank arm length, I think shorter cranks are just better. We'll have to test it out and see. I mean, we're going to get some long ones, but this makes a lot of sense, especially because I think some of those lower back issues might be exacerbated by the fact that in bike pole, we tend to be leaning very oh, yeah. far over to the side or down, right? A lot of times my head is like at level with my bars, which would never be the case even in road cycling with very aggressive <laughs> geometries, right? So I think all those things are true. And I felt it. If I'm reaching for a ball, my knee comes up and hits me in the chest, you know, yeah. and so that's strange. the real, the real question is 165 short enough or, or do you get even more benefit from going shorter? Well, I also kind of question like what about some physical conditioning, stretching routines and these kinds of things, if that might also alleviate some of these um, issues. And I always think like, is this a symptom of a bad fit or is this a symptom of my body not being where it needs to be? Is this like a warning that I should be working on something, right? Maybe get some physio yeah. or something to see if we can prepare more flexibility or a muscle I, balance that could alleviate that. I mean, it's like Bruce said, you gotta, you gotta put in the work, but instead of, in addition to putting in the work, you could also just get equipment. You know, you can always just blame the equipment or you could get better equipment. And sometimes it is the fit. You don't know yeah. until you try yeah. a bunch of different things and you figure out what you like. So I kind of wish they had, you know, cranks that like extended a, yeah. a telescoping crank arm. You could put on a bike to size it and try it and then buy the crank arms you think are best. Maybe we should invent that. Let's not put that out in the podcast world. <laughs> I guarantee you that's a thing. Some specialty shop probably makes it. 
Dang it. Anyways, we'll get to this next one. Okay. And this is a bit of a, okay, here we go. Germ from Norfolk writes, Hey y'all. First off, I love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Since I recently got turned onto it, I'm getting through all of the older episodes and I heard mention of a fixed geared episode. I'm all for that. I know we're a rare bunch, but I really only ever played fixed. As a writer who's really done everything fixed for as many years as I've been riding coming into polo, it was only natural to keep it that way. I was warned of the quote unquote disadvantages of fixed gear in the sport early on, but I'm one to look for the hidden advantages. My bike setup is definitely geared towards more easy control over the cranks. 33 by 23 is his ratio for switching from forward to reverse pedaling and adapting tricks like Kyo spins to, into quick one eighties. Well, my personal polo skill level has a ways to go competitively. I still think the fixed gear is relevant and even can have some advantages when utilized properly. I second having a player like Zach Blackburn on the show. I caught a lot of shit for my fixed gear in my rookie year <laughs> and seeing that there are there was a player in my region that was still playing fixed kept me inspired to smile at the heat and keep playing my way. After all, we're mainly doing this to have fun anyways. Thanks for doing what you're doing. I love the show from Germ. So he says fixed gear is the way to go. I mean, maybe he understands the disadvantages, but maybe he sees some hidden advantages, yeah. right? Like Kyo spins. We've never seen that in polo. It's true. I, I just want to say like I love when, and I know in this episode, like even Bruce kind of, we acknowledge the disadvantages of some of the of the fixed gear and some of the alternative strategies in polo. But like I said there before, I love that there are people that want to play their way and they bring their own style. Even if right now, like even if at their current skill level in 2021, it isn't the most winning strategy. Like you're never going to innovate unless you take risks and try new things. And like I always think of uh, I think of Gabe in Toronto, like he was a, a rookie that started or when he was a rookie, he wanted to play with his seat slammed. Uh, against his frame just like his seat is way too low Gabe if you're listening your seat is way too low uh, but like that's how he wants to play and I think the as a like as a whole we're better off for having people that like have their thing you know absolutely agree and I think as far as fixed gear we don't have to look too far to see like some obvious advantages that could come into play like if we look at cycle ball or rad ball that symbol call which is mm-hmm. probably like the most similar sport out there to bike pole that there is other than grass polo. I mean, they use the fixed gear bikes to extreme advantages when they're manipulating the ball with their front wheel, riding backwards and dragging it and flicking it forward and all these things and track standing. I mean, it's pretty obvious that you could do very similar things in bike polo if you gave it a bit of practice and you stuck with it, but we just haven't seen anyone do it. I would love to see someone show up to the polo court on one of those rad ball bikes and just tear shit up. (laughs) <laughs> they're so lowly geared though like it, the yeah. ratio they're on is super low we're talking like a jeff level ratio because yeah. they need to be to stop and start quickly but yeah i mean who knows if you have a small court where you are maybe that's something you could do you're gonna have to use short cranks though because pedal striking is going to be even more of an issue yeah. on a fixed gear i will say i don't think we've talked about this on the pod i was a huge fixie guy before we played polo like i had i've had fixies i was like all about that breakless fixed life and I thought for sure when we started playing polo that I was going to be a fixie player. Like there, there, there's a rock star in Ottawa. He's a fixie player. Like 
I think I was in a similar situation to Jerem where I saw a really good Fixie player in our region. I love Fixies. Like I had my background on Fixies and I was like, I'm going to be a Fixie player. And it wasn't until I tried playing on a Fixie and like I tried to take that first shot and I like lined up my shot and then like the pedals kept turning and I almost got bucked over the handlebars. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This makes shooting way harder. But like if you can do it, like you're used to it by all means, man, like, you know, you like keep it up. Like, I think it's so cool. And you never know what could happen. I mean, if you stick with it, perhaps we've missed something because it is a lot simpler when you're starting to be on a freewheel. But yeah. maybe fixed opens up a level of this game that we just haven't got to because we're all so focused on getting better immediately and not in the long term, you know? It, it, it's going to be a really big game changer if suddenly, if you want to play high-level defense, you have to be able to ride backwards fixed. That's going to completely change things up. But I, I could see that being the kind of advantage that could actually give like a significant strategic edge. Kind of like having having like one lefty on a team is kind of like you know the optimal team build. Maybe having one fixed player is like the optimal way. Well, I think people would argue that one lefty is not optimal. I've heard that expressed by multiple people. They just want to play all like the same hand. Oh, that's that's nonsense. But I, I think on defense in particular, there's an obvious advantage to having a lefty. But um, let's get to this last email. We're burning through these suckers. Okay. This one's long, though. I uh, I will say, just even reading one or two of these already, I have a new respect for what Liam does on this show. Absolutely. <laughs> just take all it right. slow. This is uh, Dave from St. Louis. I've made I've made the font bigger on my screen. <laughs> just just for this uh oh that's too big <laughs> okay dave from st louis writes hey goons i've been playing polo since maybe 2010 and i have my own perspective on the is bike polo a sport conversation i say if it's not a sport then it's a cult some people argue that they don't want it to be a sport because of how it'll affect its community and i would argue that all sports have a community it's almost cultish to think that we play such a superior sport that we have such a superior community. What we do have, though, is a particular culture that's capitalized cult in the, the culture. Yep. Uh, from what I hear in most arguments is that if polo was a popular sport, it would attract players from outside the typical polo culture and it would bring outsiders that think differently. And here's some insights into our community and culture currently. If you want to play bike polo with other people, you have to be nice to them because your city likely only has one polo club and there's probably only about 15 people in it. We don't have any other options. It's not that bike polo players are more sincere or kinder than soccer players. It's simply that we can't afford to be dicks. Hence the unofficial first rule of polo, which happens to not be an official rule. I will say that the obscurity of polo does at times draw a particular type of person, but I've also seen more often that new polo players or new players to polo slowly develop the style and culture of polo. Maybe they'll start wearing a jean vest or maybe they'll wear jorts and they start cutting them slowly and they start to mold uh, and they start to mold into one of their own. Uh, I am definitely guilty of that. <laughs> my, my, I didn't wear a lot of jean cutoffs and uh, now the majority of my, my shorts or jean cutoffs. Um, if it's not obvious, my insight comes from a place of humor and entertainment. My feelings about the sport have shifted over the years too. It was 100% the people in the club and the culture of St. Louis bike polo that drew me in when I started playing. And I've lived in multiple cities and I've spent time in multiple clubs. Now my favorite part of polo is just trying to bring my own personal A game. That feeling where you're executing everything exactly the way you want to on the court. 
that's why I keep playing. In order to do that, I have to remember to just not be a dick and shut my mouth when I find myself annoyed with some of the other culture that follows. I don't know if I'm a great spokesperson for polo or even the St. Louis club, given my contrarian mindset, but if you ever want to talk cults, St. Louis lock-ins or some of the wild shit that made our club special, I would happily come on and chat with you all. It would also truly be my pleasure to talk about the dangers of making rotor guards mandatory without mandating what a rotor guard can be and what can't be. Cheers, St. Louis Daver. (laughs) Okay, well... I think, I mean, we did edit that email down a little bit because it was very long, but I think at one moment he does mention that he early in life was a member of a cult and that this is part of the reason why he thinks about this a lot. And he's seen some of these kind of pieces. Now he does say in the email that there's a huge difference between a damaging cult and bike polo, but he sees a lot of these similarities as far as the mindset and some of that expressed in this is bike polo a sport kind of conversation. Alex, what do you think about this? I mean... Yeah, bike polo is kind of a cult. Like I, I think, in in so far that like obviously we're a we're a niche subculture that has a lot of its own rules. Like if you start trying to look up like dictionary definitions of a cult, like I think you could definitely make the argument that polo is is you know on the spectrum of social activities that I that I do, it's probably one of the more cultier things. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, there's definitely a bit of like echoing around the community and similar values that are shown. But I think the thing that he raises as a really solid point here is that a lot of this kind of inclusivity and niceness that we see in sportsmanship, we see in bike pole might be more at a necessity than it is out of um, just the good hearted nature of the players we attract because we're so special. That kind of comes back to the point I keep making on this, this topic where to me, when something becomes a sport, it's when you can have that like elite level of competition where the players or the athletes are like, they're not, they don't, they're not stewards for the sport. They're not like their number one priority is winning at any cost, as long as they're following the rules. And it's like that, I don't think Polo is at a point that we can sustain that. And I think that's the sort of thing that like, you see that in soccer, right? You want to be a soccer player, win, follow the rules, but like do what you got to do to win. And Polo just, our community just cannot sustain that. It would be a completely different situation if we could sustain people, you know, laying huge checks because they could get advantage or, or angle shooting and stuff like that. And like, we're so far away from that, that like, you know, thankfully we don't have to deal with it. I think that to me, that is the big dividing line, but I think a lot of people treat Polo like a sport and I think that's cool. Yeah, I think so too. It is to it is to the people who play it what they want it to be. And it can be a social club, it can be a sport, it can be a way of life. Whatever it is for you is fine. And honestly, I don't think this conversation about is it a sport or not really steers any decisions that are made about pike pole at the highest level. So in that way, it's kind of a moot argument in a lot of ways. I, I will say, even going back to our interview with Bruce, like it can be both. It can be a social club for a lot of people and that's totally cool, but it can also be a competitive sport for the people that choose to engage with it like that. And knowing when it's, you know, what situation you're in, like read the room, are you at pickup and this is a social club or is this like Sunday of an elite tournament and, you know, playing the ref is like, there's certain things that are just part of sports that are not competition in general. Yeah. 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 I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who emailed in um, for this episode. That's four awesome emails with some great explanations and thoughts and ideas. And if you're out there listening to this podcast and you have a great thought or idea or question, 
make sure you email us at northsidepolopodcast at gmail.com. That's northsidepolopodcast at gmail.com because we would love to hear from you. And we will read at least a portion of your email on air and talk about it. These emails were great. Like I, Liam isn't here today and like, man, doing the mailbag without him, I, I miss him. Uh, I really want to know how Liam responds to this stuff. So maybe we'll have to do like an Instagram story or something and get him to weigh in on some of these. Oh, two. I agree too. That sounds like a great idea. Well, we'll pressure him to do that for us. But uh, in the meantime, why don't we get to this beer point? It is the time of year for this kind of thing. So I thought it'd be really special to, for our beer point segment, talk about some New Year's resolutions that relate or are at least adjacent to bike polo. So I've been thinking about this and I know you have, Alex. I'll start with you. What's uh, your New Year's resolution for 2022? My New Year's resolution for 2022, I think it's important to have like goals that are within your control. Like I want to win tournaments. Like my goal is to not lose to Gavin in a tournament again. Just play with me and won't happen. Yeah, (laughs) but that's not always in my control. So one of the things that I I focus my goals on, uh, I want to be more fit. I want to be more physically fit next year. So I've set the goal that I want to do 350 hours of training next year. That's not like, I don't think that's an insurmountable amount. I think that's, you know, I think that's a good ent- on onboarding point for myself, but I'm going to do 350 hours of base training just to bring my cardio level back up. That's a lot of training when you think about it. That's like an hour a day. It averages out to almost an hour a day. Yeah, that's quite a bit of training. Like that's more than... Definitely most people and even some casual athletes would do, I'd say. Yeah. Well, I don't want to lose to you again. Okay. Well, what kind of training is going to, <laughs> going to be a part of this? Have you thought that through? Is it just cardio? Is it skill t- training in there as well? What's in there? It, it's going to be uh, a majority of it is going to be just zone one cardio training, like building mm-hmm. my base up, uh, just base fitness. Like it's going to be a mixture of some just sort of basic strength, like push-ups, sit-ups. I'm a big fan of like plyometrics. I don't like lifting weights in a gym like that's just a a, an ideological thing that i have uh so i'm going to be doing a lot of just like putting some hours in on either either in the saddle like on a road bike or going for jogs i'm I'm a little nervous about like how much running i can put on my knees uh obviously like i've gained weight during the pandemic and i have found my ability to run for more than 20 minutes is somewhat limited but i want to try to like work some jogs in with some just like time in the saddle to, to really get my endurance up. Yeah. You might have to do like shorter workouts at first and really crunch the hours at the end of the year. If you want to get to three fifty. Yeah. The, the good news. I mean, I have sort of a plan on how many weeks I'm going to build up. Like I'm working off of a, a template that I had before when I did a lot of training. And one of the big thing, the good thing about having like a road bike, you can put in some hours on a road bike pretty yeah, easily. For sure. You can definitely, if I, you know, if I'm ever like falling behind on hours, it's just go for a longer ride on Sunday. Well, Alex, if you end up getting on Zwift, I mean, you can always hit me up. Anyone out there listening who's on Zwift, my account is Gavin Bike Polo, all one word, Bike Polo, Gavin Bike Polo. And uh, come find me and follow me and we can do some rides virtually together because I like that. The other thing I'm doing training-wise, putting in a lot of hours on Rocket League. I'm just really <laughs> refining that strategy and that like killer instinct, that mentality, you know, that like do or die moment. And uh, I'm ranking up. I'm getting real close to champ. Fair enough. For me, I mean... I could rattle off some goals as far as like skill development and there are certain tricks and moves I want to be able to do more effectively in the future. But I think where I'm at in bike pole now, it's more about just growing the community around me. So my like polo resolution is to make sure that we're still doing the podcast a year from now um, and trying to 
dive more into that and grow that as much as we can, putting effort into that. And also just making sure that I'm supporting the local region and throwing tournaments and helping out where I can there as well. So helping throw tournaments and uh, making sure the podcast is still going. Because I know if I'm continuing to do the podcast and I'm continuing to support local clubs and growing and throwing tournaments, then I'm going to be training hecka hard because I want to win those <laughs> tournaments that I'm talking about on the podcast. So, I mean, that's going to be my motivation. So that's my resolution right there. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if anyone has ideas on what they want to see, because as keeping the podcast going for me is like a baseline, like that's not even a resolution. That's oh, all. Wow. I'm taking that for granted. Like that's not, that's not changing, but gr- choosing what we want to grow it into or maybe expand it to. Uh, I think we're both, we've, we've talked about a lot of ideas, but if people have ideas for content, like hit up, hit up the email, let us know, send us a message on Instagram. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the email Northside pull podcast at gmail.com. And the Instagram is the same at Northside Pull a Podcast. So hit us up there, DM us, tell us what you want, and we'll try to provide it as best we can. Alex, you have anything else you want to say tonight? No, that's it. All right, then. In that case, let's sign this one off. Another great episode in the books. Thank you, Bruce, for coming and talking to us. We really appreciate it. And thank you to all the listeners who are still on the line listening to us jabber on about these things. So until next time, bye for now. Bye. Uh, since that's what's most common, yeah, it seems, seems to. That's what common sense seems. Oh, to be. yeah, I can't read, man. Okay, this is why Liam, this is why Liam does the the, yeah. <laughs> the mailbag. We're shaky. <laughs>